0: A little boy was playing in the living room of his home. He was actually building something with these wooden blocks that kids used to play with. And while he was building, his father broke into the living room and started talking real loud to him. And the little boy said to his father, shh. And his father said, why should I be quiet? And the son says, because I'm building a church. And the father said, oh good, my son has learned the lesson of reverence. But he wanted to reconfirm the lesson so he said, and son, why should we be quiet in church? And the son looked at him and said, because everybody's sleeping. (laughs) I hope that's not the case this afternoon. (laughs) You should have the material. Those of you who registered for uh, this army camp, uh, you should have the material in your hands. We're going to go through uh, the material that says the origin, identity mission and message of the remnant and basically I'm just going to go through this material uh, page by page I've written it out quite extensively and if there's something that's not clear in your mind as we move along please uh, raise your hand and I'll try to clarify however before we do let's just bow our heads and have a word of prayer Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the privilege of opening your holy word. We ask, Father, for divine wisdom. For human minds cannot grasp the great things from your word without divine aid. So we ask, Lord, that you will help us to remain alert and awake. That we might be able to grasp the awesome privilege that it is to be your remnant church. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer for we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, yesterday we talked about the little book. How many of you were not here yesterday? Well, there's a few that were not here. Those of you who were here, what is this little book that is sealed until the time of the end? it's primarily Daniel 8 through 12. What aspects of Daniel 8 through 12 primarily? The aspect that has to do with the 2300 days and the judgment. You know the other succession of events uh, in Daniel 8 through 12 can be understood to a great degree but there's one aspect which is very uh, which would be impossible to understand until the time of the end and that is the judgment aspect. Now I want to read Revelation chapter 10 verses 1 through 11 so that we have a clear picture of what's going on in this chapter. Revelation 10 verses 1 through 11. And we're going to take a look at every detail of this chapter in this first session, in the second session, and in the two sessions that we have tomorrow morning. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be, and I'm going to change the translation here. The New King James takes liberties that are unwarranted. Uh, Really, it should say that there should be time no longer. But, and then it continues saying, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. This is the passage that we're going to take a look at in the next sessions together. Now let's summarize what we just read so that the sequence is clear in our minds. First of all, a mighty angel comes down from heaven to the earth. I want you to imagine that in your mind. A mighty angel comes down from heaven to the earth. Then in verse 1 his physical characteristics are described, the physical characteristics of this angel, and we're told that this angel, this mighty angel has an open scroll in his hand, which means that the scroll must have been opened before he came down, because when he arrives the scroll is already opened. Then he places one foot on dry land and the other on the sea. The next thing he does is speak with the roar of the lion, which echoes like seven thunders. Then he raises his hand and he swears the oath to the Creator, stating that time will be no longer. Then he gives the book to John for John to eat it. And after John eats the book, of course it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his belly, and then he is told to prophesy again and he's given the command to measure the temple and then you'll notice that I've placed something that is earlier in the passage at the end because we're gonna find that chronologically Revelation 10 verse 7 is supposed to be placed at the end of this passage but there's a reason why it's placed in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 7 but in terms of chronological sequence The mystery of God finished takes place after the command, or, or after the command to prophesy again and to measure the temple, even though textually it comes before that in the text. Now, let's talk first of all about the messenger. First of all, the messenger is called a mighty angel. This is not a common ordinary angel, this is a mighty angel. Secondly, we're told that his face is like the sun. Now if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, you'll find that Jesus appears in Revelation 1. And he's spoken of as having his face like the sun. We begin to start getting the idea that this mighty angel is none other than Jesus. And then he's surrounded by a cloud. In scripture, who is surrounded by clouds? always God on his throne who is surrounded by clouds and his legs are like pillars of fire. Once again the same picture as in Revelation chapter 1 it speaks of Jesus as having legs like pillars of fire and it says that he roars like a lion. Let me ask you, who is the lion in Revelation? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and then it says that he has a rainbow over his head. And I found this interesting quotation from Ellen White in Education 115. where speaking about the, the uh, rainbow, she says, As the bow in the clouds results from the union of sunshine and shower, so the bow above God's throne represents the union of His mercy and His justice. To the sinful but repentant soul, God says, Live thou, I have found a ransom and so uh, the rainbow above his head represents a combination of justice and mercy. Now not only do the characteristics show us that this mighty angel is none other than Jesus himself, his face like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire, his voice like the roaring of a lion, all of those are indications that this is speaking about Christ but Ellen White explicitly tells us that this angel was Jesus. Uh, notice uh, in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971, she says, The mighty angel who instructed John was no less a personage than Jesus Christ. And in Volume 7, pages 953 and 954, she says, The instruction to be communicated to John was so important that Christ came from heaven to give it to His servant, telling him to send it to the churches. So very clearly, this mighty angel that comes from heaven with this mighty message is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. He did not commit this to any ordinary angel, not even to Gabriel. But it is Jesus who is the main protagonist of this chapter. Now, for those who were not able to be here yesterday, we want to say a few things about the little book. We're not going to go into all of the details, but the next section deals with the little book. You'll notice that in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 we're told shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now you notice that I put here in parentheses knowledge of the book shall increase. That that, which is in brackets are my words not the words of the text but that's actually what is meant by this verse. Basically what God is saying to Daniel, He's saying, close the book, seal the book until the time of the end comes. But when the time of the end comes, the book is going to be what? The book is going to be opened and knowledge of what is contained in the book, the judgment aspect of the book, is going to what? Is going to increase. Now I know that we many times use it to speak about the great increase in technology, and certainly technology has made it easier for the message of Daniel to proliferate, but within its context, uh, it means that knowledge of the contents of the little book, particularly the judgment aspect, was going to increase in the last days. Now let's go through this material and identify this book. The tense of the verb, and this is a very important point, the tense of the verb in Revelation 10 verse 2, when it says that he comes down with the book open, Uh, doesn't really capture what the Greek says. In the Greek it says, he comes down with the book having been opened. Which means that before this book was opened, it must have been what? It must have been closed. So the tense of the the verb is the book having been opened. It's not the book that he comes down with the book open and it was always open. No. Having been opened, it's what uh, is called a perfect tense. Now, in other words, it was closed, and then it was opened immediately before the angel came down to the earth and swore the oath that time would be no longer. The little book of Daniel 4 as we studied yesterday, is unsealed when the judgment hour message is proclaimed between 1798 and 1844. Daniel 8, now this is an important point, Daniel 8.14 provides the judgment chronology that means when the judgment would begin. While Revelation 14, 6 and 7 provides the judgment hour message. So in other words, Daniel eight fourteen gives you when, and Revelation 14, 6 and 7 tells you the message that is given when the hour of God's judgment arrives. Now, I'm not going to read these statements again because we read them yesterday. There are um, actually three of them here. Uh, the little book, of course, contains the judgment hour message. Uh, could some things in this little book be understood before the time of the end? For example, did, the, uh, uh, did people understand the 70 weeks? Sure. Uh, could people understand many parts of Daniel 11? Oh sure, the parts that had to do with Persia and with Greece and, and with Rome. You know, the the early church fathers understood quite a bit about that. Uh, Could they understand about the ram and the he-goat? Absolutely. In other words, there were aspects that could be understood. But as we read in these statements from Ellen White, she says that there is a succession of events that lead finally to the judgment. The succession of events could be understood, but what those events were leading to could not be understood before the moment for the judgment arrived. In other words, the climax could not be understood. In fact, she gives the impression that the reason why you have all this sequence of events presented in Daniel is for the specific purpose of giving us the exact context of when the judgment will begin. In other words, everything that comes before are really reference points to let us know when and where the judgment was going to begin. Now let's answer another question. When was this little book opened? It says that it was going to be open at the time of the end. But the question is, what is the time of the end? Well, I have this statement from the Spirit of Prophecy and it's corroborated by what we find in Daniel 12. If you read the time periods in Daniel chapter 12, it's very clear that Ellen White is basing her comments on what we contain, what is contained in Scripture. In Great Controversy 356, she she gives gives us an explicit date when this little book was opened. She says, No such message, which is the judgment hour message, has ever been given in past ages. Paul, as we have seen, did not preach it. Could Paul preach the hour of his judgment has come? Why not? Because the hour of God's judgment hadn't come yet. She continues saying, he pointed his brethren into the then far distant future for the coming of the Lord. The reformers did not proclaim it. Martin Luther placed the the judgment about 300 years in the future from his day. Now here comes the key portion. But since 1798, the book of Daniel has been unsealed. So when was the little book? unsealed? In 1798. She says, but since 1798 the book of Daniel has been unsealed, knowledge of the prophecies has increased, and notice what particular aspect she emphasizes, and many have proclaimed the solemn message of the judgment near. Once again, what is the specific aspect that God's people are preaching after 1798. It is the hour of God's what? The hour of God's judgment. So the little book has to do primarily with the aspect that has to do with the judgment. And according to what we just noticed that little book is opened in 1798. That's when the message of the judgment can begin to be proclaimed. Now this message was to be of global extension. The angel with the book tells us that this message was going to go to earth and to sea. Now it's interesting that this global message is presented symbolically at the beginning of the chapter because he places his feet on the sea and on the land. And it is presented literally at the end of the chapter, where he's told that he must prophesy again to people, nations, tongues, and kings. So at the beginning of the prophecy, you have uh, you have a s- symbolic depiction, you know, which is placing one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. That means that it's a global, worldwide message. But when the chapter ends, it speaks this in literal language, because it says you must prophesy again to what? To peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now notice in Selected Messages, volume 2, page 107 and 108, Ellen White speaks about the meaning of one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. She says, the message of Revelation 14, proclaiming that the hour of God's judgment is come, is given in the time of the end. And the angel of Revelation 10 is represented as having one foot on the sea, and one foot on the land, showing that the message will be carried to distant lands, the ocean will be crossed, and the islands of the sea will hear the proclamation of the last message of warning to our world. So in other words, one foot on the land and one foot on the sea means that this this is to be a global message. Some have also seen the possibility, and I wouldn't uh, argue with them, that one foot on the land and one foot on the sea would represent the fact that the message was going to go to the old world and to the new world. Because the nations uh, in Daniel chapter 7 came up from the sea. But in Revelation chapter 13 we have another beast that rises from the earth, which represents the United States, the new world. Basically, the idea, once again, is that it is a global message. Now, what is meant by him placing his feet on the land and his foot on the sea? Well, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 24. Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 24. Do you know what Jesus is really doing when He places one foot on the sea and one foot on the land? He's saying, this is mine. He's taking claim to this territory, which is really comforting. It says there in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. So Jesus is giving warning to the devil. He's saying the message is going to go globally worldwide and I'm laying claim to the world. So it's a message of global extension. Are we doing well so far? See we go point by point. When we go point by point the chapter is not real complicated to understand. Now let's go to our next point and that is the seven thunders. When it comes down he's opened the book, this is 1798, he places one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, which means that this message is going to be a global message and then he lets out a roar. And when he roars like a lion, yes And dry land is not a populated area. Why don't we apply that same interpreting principle for this chapter? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think there's a better explanation to uh, the idea of this beast that rises from the earth than just saying that it's a sparsely populated area. Um, You know, in in Revelation chapter uh, 12 you have a statement that says that the earth helped the woman and basically I think that what God is trying to say is that this place that provides refuge for the woman is not the same place where those other beasts arose because the other beasts rose in in, uh, Asia and Europe and I don't know whether you've noticed this but the beasts in Daniel chapter 7 they move from east to west. The first two beasts are Asian powers. The next two beasts are European powers. So where would you expect the next beast to arise, the one from the earth? You would expect it to, to rise west of Europe. And what is west of Europe? The Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> but where, what's on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean? The United States of America. And so I think that, that the idea mainly is to establish a contrast with where those other beasts arose. And by the way, where are most people looking today for the fulfillment of prophecy? They're looking to the Middle East. While prophecy moves from east to west, people today are have their eyes on the east. In other words, their eyes have not moved with Bible prophecy. Therefore they're looking in the wrong place. Yes? The the most holy place were on their feet And their queens touched the Right. Well, you know, we can't. Uh, we uh, this is speaking in symbolic language. We can't take every place where someone is standing somewhere uh, to represent that they're laying claim to that particular place. But here, it's very significant that that the Bible says that he plants one foot and then he plants the other foot. In other words, he's laying claim, and we're and we're speaking in symbolic language. Uh, so you know, every time that you have this idea of someone stepping on something doesn't mean that they're laying claim to that territory. We're dealing with highly symbolic language here. Uh, does that help? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and you know, I wish I had time to get into the idea of, um, of this beast that rises from the earth. Uh, because there are ma- many, many times we're very inconsistent in our interpretation of prophecy uh, like you've stated. For example, we say that the ten horns on the head of the dragon beast represent ten kingdoms, right? The ten divisions of uh, what was the Roman Empire and we say that the two horns on the head of the of the ram represents uh, two kingdoms the Medes and Persians but then when we come to the beast that rises from the earth we say that the two horns are two principles so people ask now why are there kingdoms here and there on the heads of beasts and here they're two principles so the, the point is that we have to be consistent in our interpretation of prophecy and by the way I believe that those two horns, like a lamb, uh, represent two principles, but behind that idea is something deeper. See, behind the idea of two principles, which is civil and religious liberty, is the idea that there are two kingdoms in existence, the church and the state, and they're supposed to be separate. Let me ask you, in the United States are there two kingdoms? There are two. Let me ask you, just to amplify this point. Um, how many of you are citizens of the United States? Okay, good. By birth, right? Some by, by naturalization, but let's say it's by birth. How many of you are uh, members of Christ's kingdom? Are we all in the same country? Are, there two, are, we, are we citizens of two kingdoms in the United States? we most certainly are. Listen, you are a citizen of this kingdom of the United States by birth and you're citizens of the other kingdom by the new birth. But we recognize the existence of two kingdoms that that they're supposed to be what? Separate. When you join them together then you have persecution. And so behind the idea of two principles, civil and religious liberty, those are principles, stands the idea that you have two kingdoms that are supposed to remain separate, one from another. So the two horns do represent kingdoms but from that comes the idea of two principles. Okay. Now let's talk about the seven thunders. They've been uh, an object of great discussion in recent years. Now really these were not thunders as we know them, because thunders, you know they sound and they're not really saying anything. But really, when, when the lion roars, he's speaking words, intelligible words. Only his words uh, echo like thunder. Now notice an example of that in John 12, 28 and 29, John twelve twenty eight and 29. And let's begin at 27 for the context. And if you have the material, this is in your material. I put all the text so that we can save a little bit of time. Jesus is speaking here and he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is saying he's about to die. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Was that an intelligible uh, statement? Could it be understood? Absolutely. Notice verse 29. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So they were intelligible words. The thunders are something that God told John that John could understand. And we're going to notice that very clearly. Now let's go underneath that text in the material. John understood what the thunders uttered and was about to write, but was forbidden by the angel to do so. Did John understand? Of course he did. So were they words? Of course. While the little book was opened, which means that its message could be studied and understood, what the thunders uttered could not be understood. Do you notice that there's a book that's unsealed and the thunders are sealed? Let me ask you, what the thunders uttered must it have some relationship to what's in the book? Yes. Of course, it's in the same context. What the seven thunders uttered must have something to do with the contents of the little book. The message delivered by this angel was given and then sealed. And John understood it and then he was told, seal it. Don't let people know what I said. This has, something, has to be something that happened between 1798 and 1844, correct? Yes or no? Of course. You say, why? Well, let's continue. This has to be something that happened between 1798 and 1844 because it transpires after the book is opened in 1798 and before the angel swears the oath that time will be no longer in 1844. Did Did that register? Because what's next in Revelation 10? The oath. And then we already said that the book is opened when? The book is open in 1798. When is the declaration made? that time will be no longer. October 20, to 1844. There will be no more prophetic time. So, in between those points of time, you have what? What is uttered by the seven thunders? Are you follow me? See, when we when we follow the chronology of this, its study is mathematical. When we go step by step. Now, according to Ellen White, the seven thunders were a delineation of events that would transpire between, primarily between 1842 and 1844. You can go back to 1798 and make a case that the, that the thunders had to do with the message of judgment. But at least between 1842 and 1844, she seems to indicate that the thunders announced that there was going to be a disappointment. When Jesus did not come as expected about the year 1843 and the spring of 1844. In other words, the seven thunders basically told John that there was going to be a disappointment. That there was going to be an experience uh, concerning the judgment that would disappoint the people. And he was told not to write it. Now let me read you a couple of statements from Ellen White that clarifies this point. The first is in early writings, 2.35 and 2.36. She says, I saw the people of God joyful in expectation, looking for their Lord. But God designed to prove them. His hand covered a mistake in the reckoning. See His hand what? Covered. They couldn't understand it. He covered a mistake in the reckoning of the prophetic periods. Those who were looking for their Lord did not discover this mistake. And the most learned men who opposed the time also failed to see it. God designed that His people should meet with a disappointment. It's a powerful statement. The time passed. And those who had looked with joyful expectation for their Savior were sad and disheartened. While those who had not loved the appearing of Jesus but embraced the message through fear were pleased that He did not come at the time of expectation. There had to be a shaking, in other words. Their profession had not affected the heart and purified the life. The passing of the time was well calculated to reveal such hearts. By the way, this is when Jesus failed to come in the spring of 1843. And then He failed to come in the spring of 1844. And then you have the 7th month movement when the Samuel Snow preaches his sermon in Exeter, New Hampshire that uh, you know, the Day of Atonement was in the fall, therefore he was going to come in the fall of 1844. She continues saying, they were the first to turn and ridicule the sorrowful, disappointed ones who really loved the appearing of their Savior. I saw the wisdom of God improving His people and giving them a searching test to discover those who would shrink and turn back in the hour of trial. So what did God do? He covered a what? He covered a mistake in their reckoning. In another statement, this is in a follow-up in page uh, 236 of early writings. she says, Those faithful disappointed ones who could not understand, and and this is my expression in brackets, because the thunders were sealed, why their Lord did not come, were not left in darkness. Again, they were led to their Bibles to search the prophetic periods. The hand of the Lord was removed from the figures and the mistake was explained. They saw that the prophetic periods reached to 1844 and that the same evidence which they had presented to show that the prophetic periods closed in 1843 proved that they would terminate in 1844. So now what they could not understand, they now understand. Now, notice the following statement is, is a powerful statement, because it, she refers directly to the seven thunders. This is in Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971. Explicit. I don't know how you can misunderstand this. She says, The special light given to John, which was expressed in the seven thunders, was a delineation of events which would transpire under the first and 2nd angels' messages. When were the 1st and 2nd angels' messages preached? Between 1840 primarily and 1844. So when uh, did the 7 thunders utter their voice and give their message? During this period. She says that the 7 thunders were a delineation of the events that would take place under the 1st and 2nd angels' messages. And then notice what she continues saying. It was not best for the people to know these things. Did we just read something concerning that in early writings? Absolutely. She says, It was not best for the people to know these things. Did God cover the mistake? Yes. Did He seal it? Absolutely. And she continues saying, For their faith must necessarily be what? Be tested. So when do we place the seven thunders, according to Ellen White? They're between 1840 approximately and the year what, and the year 1844. And what do the seven thunders have to do with? They had to do with the disappointments that took place preliminary to the great disappointment in 1844. Now, some have misunderstood an Ellen White quotation where she appears to state that the thunders will sound in the future, but they don't study carefully her syntax. She wrote this quotation in 1900. So presumably the thunders had not yet uttered their message at that time. Here's the quotation. After these seven thunders uttered their voices, the injunction comes to John as to Daniel. Notice, who does the injunction come to? To John and to Daniel. In regard to the little book, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. So who is, uh, who is this talking about? Is this a message to the people who lived at that time? Or is this message being given to Daniel and to John? It's being given to Daniel and to John. After these seven thunders uttered their voices, the injunction comes to John as to Daniel. In regard to the little book, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. Now here's the part that's misunderstood. These relate to future events, which will be disclosed in their order. Some people say Ellen White was writing in 1900, and she's saying here that the seven thunders relate to future events which will be disclosed in their order, future from 1900. However, if you read the first part of this statement, she's talking about what? She's not talking about people who live after the year 1900, she's saying that the injunction that comes to John as to Daniel in regard to the little book, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, these relate to future events from the time of whom? From the time of Daniel and John. Because it's referring to an injunction that is given to whom? To Daniel and to John. So it's saying these These relate to future events which will be disclosed in their order. In other words, God is saying to Daniel and to John, this relates to future events which will be disclosed in their order. Now, notice that this is the correct interpretation because she continues saying, Daniel shall stand in his lot at the end of the days. John sees the little book unsealed. When was that? We already noticed. What date? 1798. Then Daniel's, listen carefully, then Daniel's prophecies have their proper place in the first, second, and third angel's messages to be given to the world. The unsealing, and here it's explicit, the unsealing of the little book was the message in relation to time. So are you understanding the point here? Yes, no, maybe, perhaps. Anybody out there? (laughs) To whom is the injunction given? To Daniel and to John. And basically they're told these things relate to what? Future events. Not from 1900 forward, but future events with regards to the time frame of Daniel and John. Which will be disclosed in their order. And then she goes on to say that uh, when the three angels' messages are proclaimed... Uh, you know, this uh, would be fulfilled and then she says that uh, the unsealing of the little book has to do with time. So, the seven thunders are not to be seen as future. The seven thunders are to be seen as a delineation of events, as Ellen White says, between the unsealing of the little book and the year 1844. Now, uh, notice the following paragraph. The crucial question here is this, were the seven thunders going to utter events that were future from the time frame of Daniel and John, or from the time frame of Ellen White? A careful reading of this quotation reveals that the seven thunders are future from Daniel and John's time, not from the time of Ellen White. The sentence before the quotation in bold makes this crystal clear. She says, after these seven thunders uttered their voices, the injunction comes to John as to Daniel in regard to the little book. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. Yes? Oh, it's a symbolic portrayal of the fact that, that Jesus, it's like the three angels that fly in the midst of heaven you know we're not to expect uh, three angels whizzing through the heavens uh Ellen, an angel comes down to share with John, Revelation 10 yes so it's in a vision of course this is a vision for and also, sure vision. absolutely he's seen this in vision and by the way uh, for for the prophets visions were as real as reality have you ever had a dream where it's as real as reality? Have you ever had a dream where when you wake up you're sweating? I have. Like being on a roller coaster that never stops. I'll tell you, when, you know, you wake up and you're breathing hard and you're sweating like crazy. Because the dream was very real, Right? And with the prophets, the, you know, the prophets many times didn't know whether they were actually there or not. So the Apostle Paul says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 12, he says you know, uh, I, I knew a man 13 years ago who was taken to the third heaven. I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. He said I don't know whether it was in person or whether in vision. So, and, and Ellen White, you know, Ellen White speaks about her angel taking her and transporting her to the holy city. In fact, Revelation says that John was transported to the holy city, but you know, the body of Ellen White was still on earth. But it's the mind that's being uh, transported to heaven in vision, in other words, or in a dream. Now, let's talk about the oath. Are we doing okay so far? All right. let's talk about the oath. After the angel has descended with the open book, what date? 1798, and the thunders had uttered their voices, what dates? I have 42, 43, you can put 40 through 43 or 44, it Doesn't the time frame isn't precise. An announcement was made with an oath that prophetic time would be no longer. Are you, are you with me? An oath, now comes the oath. Now, we have one minute before the break. Let me finish this next paragraph and then we'll come back. It is obvious that the declaration time will be no longer cannot have been made by the angel before the 42 months were over or before the 1260 days were over or the three and a half times were over. He said one minute. He's my timekeeper. it's called delegation. (laughs) So very quickly, it is obvious that the declaration time will be no longer cannot have been made by the angel before the 42 months, before the 1260 days ended, before the three and a half times ended, before the three and a half days ended, or before the 2300 days ended, because if it had happened before those periods ended then you couldn't say the time would be no longer. Are you catching the point? Okay. Now let's take a break.